0: Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman.
1: And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I just want to wish my fellow fans of Halloween and gothic literature a very happy, spooky season. This year, we are bringing you not one, but two Halloween specials. Hannah, how thrilled are you that we are doubling down on ghost stories this year?
0: Uh, Yeah, I'm... I'm ecstatic, Lauren,
1: over the moon. I thought you might be. So this (laughs) week we are talking about two Victorian writers, Charlotte Riddle and Edith Nesbitt, who were responsible for some pretty spooky stories. Now, to help us with the riddle, get it? Yeah, I got it. Hannah (laughs) Hannah wrote this week's episode Um, to help us (laughs) with the riddle of why so many women writers are drawn to ghostly tales is this week's very special guest, Melissa Edmondson. I have been a big fan of Melissa's for a while now been following her online and buying her books. So this was a real treat to record.
0: Melissa Edmondson is a literary historian interested in 19th and 20th century British women writers, ghost stories, the supernatural, the gothic, and Anglo-Indian popular fiction. So I think that sums up why Lauren's a big fan (laughs) in that first sentence, right? So having earned her PhD in Victorian literature, Melissa's work centres on rediscovering neglected women writers who excelled in the areas of supernatural literature and popular fiction. Her work includes... Women's Ghost Literature in 19th Century Britain, and Women's Colonial Gothic Writing, 1850-1930, Haunted Empire. Women's Weird, Strange Stories by Women, 1890-1940, and Women's Weird 2, More Strange Stories by Women, 1891-1937. In addition to these books, Melissa has also edited several scholarly editions of Neglected Writing by Women, if you listen to our most recent season on literature and race, you'll be familiar with Melissa's work on the Broadview edition of Diana Mulock-Crake's The Half-Caste and Old Governess's Tale. And today we'll be talking about her most recent title for Broadview, Charlotte Riddle's supernatural novella, The Uninhabited House, which was published earlier this year. The Broadview edition was published earlier this year. The Uninhabited House is from <laughs> 1875. Just to clarify. Yeah, true story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: I do have that big, broad question for you and something that has come up on the podcast before. is just like, why are the Victorians so obsessed with ghosts? Is it Charles Dickens' fault?
2: <laughs> He's part of it. He's partly to blame. Yeah, I think it's safe to say the Victorians were very much obsessed with death. But I also would say they had good reason to be mm-hmm. just because of the fact that you know, mortality rates were just much, much higher, right, than they are yeah. now. We sort of, I think we kind of take it for granted. And, um, you know, whether it was, you know, infant or child mortality, or just, you know, shorter lifespans, or, you know, kind of all those things that we hear about the Victorian era with, you know, the crowded cities and the mm-hmm. the smog and the pollution and the unsafe work conditions and, and all things like that. Just, you know, it, it, death became a part of life. You I know, mean, sounds mm-hmm. kind of cliche, but I feel like that—that's how I think about it. And a lot of people, you know, have have kind of written it that way. Um, but you know, we have the rise of spiritualism too happening. You know, mid you know mid century, eighteen fifties, with you know the Fox sisters in America. And then the popularity, you know, transfers over to England and just, you know, all of these people sort of trying to make sense of death and, you know, kind of reconnect with those loved ones. Um, so, yeah, I think there's you know, almost like a culture of death, you know, mm-hmm. in the Victorian period. And then that leads to, you know, the seances that we have with mm-hmm. spiritualism and, um, you know, mourning jewelry and spirit photography yeah. and, um, you know, like dreams and premonitions were beginning to be studied. We have, you know, that Victorian interest in psychology, right, in the mind and trying to figure out things. And, uh, you know, we have groups like the um, Society for Psychical Research founded in 1882, and and they're studying these things and um, studying haunted houses for the first time, too. So, yeah, so all of these things, I think, sort of become entertainment then right with yeah. the you know the rise of the the popular magazines and that type of culture um you know the rise of the middle class readership uh you know it just it just it fit well with that interest that they had in ghost and and we have to yeah you know, we have to blame Dickens or congratulate him or thank <laughs> him however you want to look at it for um you know Christmas Carol uh, 1843 right but also um, his other publications, like all the year round and household words mm-hmm. where he would do rounds of ghost stories and we have those, you know so-called extra Christmas numbers or extra holiday numbers at the end coming at the end of the year, which contains so many of these good ghost stories. So yeah, it really it, it lent itself well. Um, and then, you know, not something that was new to the Victorian period but just telling stories around the fire, you know, um, usually, you know, the colder, the winter months when everyone was inside, um, usually around the holidays, um, just that tradition, you know, was was there. And just, you know, they were able to kind of use that. And these stories were uh, really well suited for the magazines as well, because they were, they were short, Mm -hmm. you know, they were self-contained and, um, you know, they fit very well in a lot of these, these issues.
1: So, so yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I also the um, because we were trying to figure out like the Christmas ghost story as well, but it makes sense that you you'd be indoors with your family or with friends and like telling stories. So, yeah, that's important. Yeah, I think we really,
2: we we probably do have Dickens to thank for that, especially though to really make it you know not just like a winter tradition, but really you know with a Christmas Carol having it set kind of firmly within that that December time mm-hmm. frame. Yeah.
1: So I love that section um, on women's ghost stories in particular in your introduction. And I was just hoping that you could tell us um, a little bit like about, you know, why the supernatural gothic genre was important to women in particular.
2: Yeah, I really think that the ghost story, the gothic allowed women in a lot of ways to sort of comment or critique the social world around them and the culture around them, Um, you know, a lot of that had to do with, you know, inequalities, you know, that they were experiencing at the time. But I feel like with women's ghost stories in particular, there's this really nice emphasis on relationships Mm -hmm. and, you know, family dynamics and, you know, the traumas that sort of, you know, just naturally happen within a lot of those relationships. So, you know, the things that happen in the world of the living that then eventually cause the haunting, you know, to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's just, that's a really, you know, kind of strong element that we have in women's stories. And just that emphasis on the domestic, I think is very effective because, you know, often women are criticized for being, um, you know, big air quotes too domestic, right. With Mm -hmm. their, whether with their fiction, supernatural or or non-supernatural. But I think it works really well within that supernatural, that ghost story framework, because the domestic, the, you know, the house is supposed to be the safe place, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the place we go to be safe, to kind of, you know, distance ourselves from the unsafe, right, you know, mm-hmm. outside world. Uh, but there's a lot of effective fear that comes in when that, you know, that safe space, that domestic is sort of invaded, Right. You know, by this this ghost or this, you know, kind of otherworldly spirit. Um, So I think that that's sort of a defining quality, I really feel like uh, with women's stories that makes them really effective. Um, And I guess on a more maybe just kind of practical level, uh, these stories, you know, gave women a way to make a living financially Mm -hmm. and support themselves, support their families. Um, So I think that's, you know, something else, going back to the popular magazines, they took advantage of that, um, that increasing popularity, the increasing circulation of these, um, these pieces of literature to, you know, again, make a living. And it's sort of neat, I've seen um, interviews with certain editors, I think I included one um, in the introduction to the Uninhabited House, where editors they talk about almost preferring women writers. They say we like to work with them and we kind of seek them out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think it you know it, it served women well in a lot of ways. This, this you know this particular genre.
1: Now, um, one name I've seen pop up quite a bit, and this is my first time actually reading any one of her stories, is I might mispronounce it: Charlotte Riddle or Riddell. <laughs> I've actually,
2: um, I've seen some places where they're quite emphatic about it being riddle. So okay. that's what I go with. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not 100%, but I have seen it. Um, some com- contemporary sources as well saying that that's how it was pronounced. So that's what I go with. Okay, <laughs> anyway. that sounds good. <laughs> it could be the other, but that's what I'm going with.
1: <laughs> she had a fascinating life, as uh, you know. You tell us all about in the introduction to the book. Uh, can you give us a little summary of what, what went down with her?
2: Yeah, um, that's that's hard to do <laughs> in yeah, a nutshell because a there's lot. so much that happened. Uh, she was uh, born Charlotte Eliza Cowan um, in 1832 in Carrickfergus, Ireland, which is now Northern Ireland. Um, she moves to London with her mother shortly after her father's death, which again, the theme of kind of insecure financial situations mm-hmm. sort of you know followed her throughout her life unfortunately and she did the best she could with them but she goes to london mid 1850s around 1855 some people say a little bit you know before or after we'll say 1855 she moves to london and this is a hard time for her because I mean, she talks about in interviews you know, going up and down the the rainy, cold London streets, you know, from one publishing house to another with her manuscript, trying to get someone to accept it so she can make her way as a professional author. Uh, she's also taking care of her mother, who's sick, um, dies shortly after they move to London. Um, and yeah, just the kind of the tragic theme that follows her, um, she supposedly uses the proceeds from her first novel, Zuriel's Grandchild, to pay for her mother's funeral expenses. So it's oh just gosh. sort of like one thing after another. Mm-hmm. Um, soon after 1857, uh, she marries Joseph Hadley Riddle. Um, so that's where we get the Mrs. J. H. Riddle that she publishes most of um, her novels under. Um, he's a civil engineer, um, kind of self-professed, kind of fancied himself an inventor. Uh, but wasn't very successful, which leads to problems um, down the road from that. But um, she is able to kind of make her way after that first novel. She becomes very successful as a novelist. Um, over the course of her career, writes over 50 books, oh, gosh. Uh, which is just amazing to think about. I mean, collect you know novels, short stories, um, some nonfiction, some travel books. Um, She specializes in this what's called the city novel. So the the novel really, you know, I consider her a pioneer for the ghost story. But I think she's also a pioneer, uh, one of the first women to really write about London business life, Mm -hmm. you know, that women just, you know, they didn't do back Mm -hmm. then. Um, And that is something, too, that that Riddle was very adamant about. Um, she says in interviews, women need to know about finances. They Mm -hmm. need to, they need to know math, and they need to know what goes into paying the bills. And, you know, where does the money, where does it coming from? Where is it going? She was really, um, that was very important to her. Um, But she's, you know, she's writing during this time. George Geith of Fancourt was published 1864. That's really her, her one really bestseller. um, Tinsley, pays her 800 pounds uh which again at the Uh time was you know quite a lot to be offered for that um she's you know publishing in the popular magazines like we talked about she has these series of supernatural novellas that are published in Rutledge's um usually you know every every holiday season but but yeah the problems uh with Joseph Riddle they they become quite you know quite they accelerate quite a bit um he has a number of failed business ventures and eventually claims bankruptcy Mm -hmm. and this really impacts charlotte um, has a very negative impact Um, to pay off some of the debt she has to sell the copyright Mm -hmm. um, of her work so that you know gives up you know immediate income and then you know even more importantly maybe for the future she doesn't make money Mm -hmm. you know on on reprints and and new editions and, um, Joseph dies in 1880 and she really spends the rest of her life trying to pay off his debts. So, you know, you think about, oh, you know, she's paid 800 pounds. That's great, you know, for a novel, but you know, where's that money going? Mm-hmm. Um, and she's, she really, you know, struggles with that. She, she moves around. Um, she's one of the first, Um, authors to be supported by a pension from the Society of Authors. And she continues writing up until 1902 was her last novel. Um, And she dies in 1906. Um, So, you know, again, that, you know, financial issues are really something that, you know, was a part of her life. And it really finds its way into her fiction as well.
1: I mean, gosh, I feel like we find that time and time again, we're studying Mm. women writers, right? (laughs) it's
2: it's a recurrent unfortunate (laughs) recurring theme yeah
1: yeah now how did the broadview press edition of the uninhabited house come about exactly
2: this really has to do with my own research interest selfishly Mm -hmm. i thought i definitely want to do something that's you know what I, i i try to you know focus on women's supernatural fiction and there are so many out there that need to be sort of you know Re rediscovered and mm. and uh read again that were popular you know during their life and for whatever reason you know in the in the decades after their death they just um were kind of forgotten in a lot of ways but um it, it way back in i want to say 2010 or so um, i published an article in the journal gothic studies about the um so-called uncomfortable houses of um charlotte riddle and her ghost stories and her fiction and for that i I focused on a few stories from her collection weird stories that was published in 1882 and at the time i thought i would be it would be sort of neat to um republish you know work on an edition one of her her supernatural novellas so um sort of a long time coming but, Mm -hmm. but it worked out well and um i think that um again there's so many themes in that one particular you know story novella um it just it works well from lots of different angles you know again it's you know it's a a woman writer um you know there's you know a little bit of that london london city life um Mm -hmm. that she worked you know from her novel so that's coming in so there's financial issues you know there's the ghost story there's even empire comes in, in in various places within the story so i think that's just a It's kind of a nice representative example of what she's, she was so good at with her supernatural fiction.
1: I follow your work online and I see you constantly in the process of, you know, digging up long forgotten authors or, you know, finding stories by maybe some lesser known female authors. And I just want to know, you know, what's your process? Like, how are you, how are you finding all of these stories?
2: Yeah, that's sort of where I now have my my current problem of collecting, you know, these books in first editions. <laughs> I say that's that's, yeah. that's I have a pro- I have a, you know, I have a problem now with that because um sometimes I have to buy these books just to have the story because it's nowhere else. You know, it's maybe in mm-hmm. five libraries, academic libraries, you know, throughout the world, um, you know, and in, in the you know, the British Library or somewhere like that that I can't, you know, readily get to. And um, but I mean, a lot of them thankfully are, if you know who to look for, that's kind of the, the key, right? You know, if you know, okay, I, I, I know about Charlotte Riddle now, so I can go find some and you can mm-hmm. find those online, you know, because they are out of copyright. Um, uh, but with, you know, I, I go up with my own research, I go kind of into, um, about mid 20th century. And when you move into the 30s or 40s, especially if these works are still in copyright, they can be, you know, fairly difficult to -hmm. find. Yeah. So but Victorian stories are pretty, pretty easy, like I said, but you just have to. um, Gutenberg's great. Mm -hmm. Gutenberg, Australia. um, Oh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I guess their, their copyright laws might be slightly different, mm-hmm. um, but they have a lot of things that aren't available in other places. So that's that's a nice go to source as well. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, can you give our listeners a brief summary of Charlotte Riddle's The Uninhabited House?
2: Yeah, without giving too much away. Um, it's it's great. We have these opening scenes in this um, this law office, and then we have um this kind of larger than life Irish lady who comes in and she's sort of the, the terror of the, the, um, the law office. Um, but she's quite upset because she can't rent her house because people keep moving out and, um, she doesn't want to admit that it's haunted. Um, so there's this one kind of stalwart Uh, clerk who who works there and says okay I'll do it for a certain amount of money Um, so again kind of that financial comes out again Mm -hmm. and he offers to to stay in the house and try to solve the mystery uh, of of River Hall Um, so it's it's kind of neat because there's a little bit of detective story in there Mm -hmm. as well and the kind of mystery story too Um, so he Um, not to give too much away, but um, he discovers some secrets that were um, kind of surrounding the family and things that happened. And again, it has to do with um, kind of nefarious dealings with money lending. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's kind of shades of Dickens there as well. Um, There's a a heroine in the story that um, there's a little bit of romance. So, um, but I think the, you know, the ghost um, in the story, I won't say who it is. It's done very well. I think mm-hmm. the, the appearance and kind of the fact that the the narrator, um, this, this law clerk is sort of um, kind of continues to be haunted by mm-hmm. his experiences in the house, I think is done very well. Um, and I think that hopefully readers will really enjoy, just like the sentient qualities you know these living qualities that the house itself has um i talk about this in the introduction i really feel like it's a kind of an early prototype of shirley jackson's hill house um there's a great description where the house sort of follows him he tries to get away from you know from it for a little while and it kind of follows him um so i think there's some there's some neat things that that riddle's doing um but i'll i won't um I won't spoil the ending and, and tell anyone how it, happy or no, how it ends. You
1: guys have to <laughs> but read some it. some
2: great characters. They, I mean, I mm-hmm. think Riddle does, her characterization, whether it's her novels, short stories, she's really, really good at drawing, you know, really great kind of defined, memorable
1: characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a character piece, I think, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Hannah, mm-hmm. my co-host, gets very scared. <laughs> but I think Hannah can read this one and be fine. <laughs>
2: I think so. I think, yeah, that's a good point too. I don't think it's one that's going to necessarily, you know, really terrify anyone. It's just, Mm -hmm. it's, it's suspenseful. I think it's a good, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a little bit of a thriller. It's suspenseful. It's, it's well plotted, but yeah, if you're, you know, kind of tend to shy away from these, I think you'll be fine. Yeah, (laughs) I think you'll be fine with this particular story. It's just, it's good. It's good entertainment. You can see why, you know, the Victorians love this type of thing.
1: You read a lot of supernatural fiction, I'm assuming. (laughs)
2: A lot. yeah.
1: A lot. A lot. Way more than most of us. Um, Is there like a particular story that's just really stayed with you or kept you up at night?
2: Yeah, I I mean, again, I wouldn't necessarily say that that Charlotte Riddle writes the most terrifying stories. I think she's Mm -hmm. really great at what she does. And I think she does it better than most kind of that blend of um you know telling a good ghost story well plotted good characters but mixing in the social elements so when Mm -hmm. i want that kind of story i feel like charlotte riddle is one of the best when it comes to you know victorian or otherwise she just does it so well personally my personal preference for stories that really i feel like genuinely unsettle me um Edith Nesbitt, I don't know if you've mentioned her. I mean, she comes up quite a bit as a um, children's author, you Mm -hmm. know, just like Riddle again, writing her novels of the city. We have Nesbitt, you know, mainly wrote children's novels and was very successful with that, but she also wrote ghost stories. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of her ghost stories, again, what I was saying earlier have to do with, with women who are, you know, somehow victimized emotionally maybe physically different ways they're victimized in life and they come back as these revenants and these ghosts and they're able to sort of take revenge mm-hmm. um on, on the people who mistreated them um, so i think she does that really well and one of the thing about Nesbit, again um, she's someone if you type in um edith nesbitt or e nesbitt as she published under um, her works are out of copyright, so your listeners can definitely find um, Grim Tales and Fear mm-hmm. are her two collections, 1893 and 1910, I want to say. Um, but her her endings are um, kind of take no prisoners. They're not mm-hmm. very happy endings, but I kind of prefer that with my ghost stories. I don't like ones that are kind of neatly tied up. Mm-hmm. I kind of gravitate more towards the ones that are kind of they're open-ended or they, they leave you kind of thinking. And some of the descriptions that Nesbitt have of, of her ghost and, and things like that are just there. I feel like they, they stand the test of time. They're still really, really effective and, and they, they are quite unsettling. I I don't really like to read them before, right before (laughs) going to bed. So (laughs) So I I think she. He would be yes yeah, so Edith Nesbit or E Nesbit um is one of my my top recommendations for one if you want to if you want to be kind of creeped out about mm-hmm. it um um again great characters great plotting but I think the fear is really there in her stories
1: there is like I just I don't know that reminded me there was um a short story I mean I read this in college a million years ago it was like it was by Harriet Prescott Spofford and it was, I cannot remember which one it was. I keep like, every once in a while I go look looking for it. And then I was like, no, it was so unsettling. I don't want to look for it. But I do want to know, but I don't.
2: Oh, I know. Oh, I know. I think I know because she did write ghost stories. Yeah. I, I can't. And now like, if you wouldn't have said anything, I could have remembered what it was. <laughs> but I know, I know. I think I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because yeah, I, every once in a while, I just actually got a book the other day that had like one of her, it was like a romance or something that she had in there. But I was like, what was that ghost story she wrote? Yeah. It was horrible. But also I don't want to read it again.
2: <laughs> I mean, that that's a good point too. So many of these women, you know, they, they kind of get maybe pigeonholed a little bit too much for writing uh, romance, and we can get into a whole other thing about how important romance is, you know, culturally, and it has so much to say, mm-hmm. you know, for being you know, again, so called light, you know, big air quotes, entertainment, and there's a lot, you know, culturally that we can think about with romance, but they they kind of got, you know, into that category. and And people see them, oh, they wrote these little, you know, again, light romances, you mm-hmm. know, no big deal. And then at the same time, they're writing these really, you know, terrifying, you know, at at times very violent you know ghost stories and Mm -hmm. um again maybe it was like an outlet you know that they they wanted to take a chance on that they couldn't do maybe in their you know safer you know longer fiction and novels so yeah there's some great ones out there I have my list I have like a running list of women um who wrote ghost stories and it's it's now well over 200 and the list is growing so you know it's just there's so many so many out there
1: are you, is there anyone like you're on the hunt for now that you're like, where do I find more about this author? Are you like, like, is there like a holy grail of someone on your list?
2: Oh my goodness. Um, I guess one of my my favorites in the 20th century is Marjorie Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Um, her work is still out, uh, um, still in copyright. So um, I was able to include one of her stories in um, a women's weird collection I, I did with handheld a few years ago. But um, you have to, um, there's some fees that go along with that. But mm-hmm. um, she's one I'm, I'm trying to collect all of her books. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to kind of hunt for those. Um, but yeah, there's some that are just very elusive. Again, um, there's some especially if you get into the 20th century, but also you know into the 19th I know that these editions were published but there're just no copies you right. know out there or there may be just a few in the library but um, libraries different places but um, you know it's just it's kind of it's like a detective hunt on its own you know trying to track down some of these stories to find but usually i, I read one and that leads to another so mm-hmm. <laughs> I, i'm i'm staying busy you know staying busy <laughs>
1: Well, actually, are you able to tell us anything that you're working on now? Have you got anything else coming up that you want to promote?
2: Yeah. Um, in addition to um, Ben and Habitat House, which was in May, so that was just been published. Um, I have two new editions um, coming out from Handheld Press, which um, is a publisher based in Bath, um, UK. Um, so I have Helen Degary Simpson, um, The Outcast in the Right, which is a collection roughly 1925 to 38 so a little bit more into the the 20th century Uh, so that was published in May and then I have another one I stay busy uh, with handheld um, a new collection of DK Broster's weird fiction Um, again roughly about the same time a little bit more of a time span like early early 20th century up until like 1945 Mm -hmm. um, and that's coming out in August. So those are my books for this year. Um, uh, Let's see. I have a chapter uh, forthcoming in the Edinburgh Companion to the Irish Gothic. And I definitely talk about Charlotte Riddle Mm -hmm. um, in that chapter. And that's been really fun to work on because there's, there's such a long and established tradition of Irish women's supernatural writing that not a lot of people are aware of or talk mm-hmm. about. Um, so it's been kind of neat to, to do a survey of that and find some find some names again that I had never read before or encountered. so um, so yeah, so that's kind of some of the things that that I'm working on.
1: Big question. Our last question is a, it's a huge <laughs> one. People always make fun of me for it, but book recommendations and it can be anything at all.
2: Yeah, well, I would definitely say, I'm going to say Edith Nesbitt because I mentioned yeah. her earlier. So, And that's one you can definitely find, you know, if you do a lot of searching or not even that much searching, if you find her um, out of copyright, um, you know, Gutenberg or something like that, mm. um, her work is out there. Um, I guess, keeping with the ghost theme, I would recommend um, the Tales of the Weird series that's done by the British Library. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are coming out pretty regularly now and they feature some really great Victorian supernatural fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so check those out and they can, you know, you can go probably anywhere and, and you know find a copy of those. Um I definitely want to give a shout out to Broadview. Um and again, you know, for for lots of different, you know, recent editions, they're just continuing to, you know, produce excellent stuff. Um they have new editions of works by Olive Schreiner, um, Pauline Hopkins, which I think yeah. you discussed discussed right, yes. recently. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm so glad to see her work again, you know, um, in the mystery genre kind of, you know, coming out again. Um, so I recommend them. And I guess finally I'll, I'll keep my list as short as I can. Um, I'd like to mention Charlotte Riddle's A Struggle for Fame. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was published 1883 and that's her kind of semi-autobiographical novel it has to do with a um, a young woman who comes from Ireland to England to try to make her way in the world as a professional Mm -hmm. writer Um, and that's recently been republished by Tramp Press um, in Ireland as part of its um, Recovered Voices series.
1: Oh cool. So if
2: listeners want to again a lot of riddles work, you know, you could find if, you know, archive.org or, you know, different places like that. It's a little bit tough to, I feel personally, it's kind of hard to read a, a whole novel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you, if you want to get a nice print edition, they're not a lot out there right now. So I'm hoping, you know, the trend to republish riddles work really continues. Um, you know, awesome, maybe yes. I hope the uninhabited house kind of spurs some renewed interest. And there's been, a little bit more um kind of critical interest, some publications on her work, but but this new edition of a struggle for fame, I hope, um kind of spurs on more of her novels because her novels are really good. Um they really stand the test of time. They're um they're witty. She had a great sense of humor, um, which I think you see a lot of that in, in the Uninhabited House. And there's some really funny moments mm-hmm. in that in that story as well. So if you yeah, if you would definitely want to check out more of Charlotte Riddle's work, um, like
0: I said, there's, um, I'm really happy there's a modern edition of that. And we are back. Lauren, you will be pleased to know that I did read The Uninhabited House. I almost just read the introduction, but I was like, I will give it a go. And Melissa was right, it wasn't too spooky at all. A good recommendation. Yeah, I did get unsettled quite a few times, but it didn't make me want to stop. Uh, And we don't want to spoil the plot of this one too much because it really is the perfect Halloween read. If you do want to check it out, it is available on Project Gutenberg, but we would recommend picking up the Broadview edition, not only for Melissa's fantastic introduction and footnotes, but also the other works that are included in the appendices. So it is definitely worth getting a hold of that one. One thing that I picked up on in Melissa's introduction that really helped me frame the story and helped me, I think, understand why I liked it, why it wasn't, like, too gothic-y for me, is that the story is described as business gothic. as business gothic. Which does, it sounds like vampires with day jobs a little bit, I think. If you try and Google business gothic, it's basically just, like, how to wear pointy shoes to the office. so it's like it's all just like fashion so uh, like business goth casual uh so to help you understand what it actually means beyond the shoe thing uh here's a quote from the introduction to the uninhabited house
1: yeah can i just say that i love business gothic and i really want that on a t-shirt i might have to make that happen
0: (laughs) anyway here's
1: the quote and it's a good one Women writers of the supernatural frequently use the motif of the haunted house to comment on property, class, and economic issues. In his discussion of business gothic, and that is capitalized, business gothic, Edward Copeland traces the connection between women, money, and the gothic back to the 18th century, saying that gothic terror in women's fiction is unremittantly economic. This emphasis is frequently combined with the anxieties over losing money as economic concerns inspire plots having to do with lost or stolen inheritances or other financial difficulties. These issues are central to Riddle's supernatural fiction as she combines an entertaining ghost story with real world concerns over wealth, poverty, inheritance, and social mobility.
0: Yeah, so I think business gothic is like the most bonnets at dawn horror writing that could exist, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Something I really, really appreciated about the book was the narrative voice, which just felt very authentic. So the story's told to you uh, by a character called Patterson, who was giving me, like, Daniel Radcliffe in The Woman in Black, or like a Sense and Sensibility era Hugh Grant vibes.
1: You know? Oh, absolutely. I think Daniel Radcliffe should be the official narrator for the business gothic genre. Uh,
0: And the book opens with this line, If ever a residence suitable in every respect for a family of position, haunted a lawyer's offices, the uninhabited house about which I have a story to tell, haunted those of Messrs Craven and Son, number 200 Buckingham Street, Strand. I just... There was just something so, like, authentically male in that sentence. (laughs) Like, there is a bit in the introduction that I think explains why Riddle is able to write so authentically in that male voice and, like, really inhabit it. Lauren, do you want to read that quote?
1: I fancy I must have a certain sympathy with city men, their lives and hopes and struggles, for they have always spoken to me very freely about their affairs. And so to a great extent, I have learned a great deal from them. I understand men well. I have much in sympathy with them and I always find them easier to describe than women. Men, especially young men, doctors and others, come and talk to me about their work and their life.
0: It makes me wonder if she like met a young lawyer one day and was just like, I can use this. Yeah, for sure. She's like, I can't wait to write a
1: story where I haunt the hell out of this guy.
0: One last thing I really appreciated about this edition was how Melissa broke down not only the importance of economics within the uninhabited house and within Riddle's wider work, but also the way her own relationship with money was viewed. Uh, She had to work to pay off her husband's debt and to support his failed business. And in 1923, Riddle was described by Harry Furness as an example of Thackeray's fashionable authoress, the stereotypical and much disparaged woman author who writes to financially support herself. Which is so shitty, that that is like a, a reason to <laughs> disparage someone. And I always, I talk about it on the show all the time, but it's that first day of my creative writing degree. And the guy said to me like, well, I don't want to write for money, Hannah. That's where we're different. Oh,
1: God. It's like, what's wrong with
0: writing for money? I don't get it.
1: Nothing at all. and. Can we just say, poor Charlotte Riddle, like, would have been way better off single instead of working her way through all of these books to get her husband out of debt. I feel like that actually is a business gothic plot in itself.
0: Here's my last favorite quote from the introduction. If the Victorian man was fond of saying an Englishman's home is his castle, then the Victorian woman in her supernatural fiction was saying quite the opposite as the domestic dangers that these literary ghosts reflected challenged and troubled this view.
1: A quote so good, you're going to hear it again next week. Okay, so we are running a little bit low on time, but I do want to circle back around to Edith Nesbitt really quickly. Um, Full disclosure, definitely familiar with the name, but I have never read The Railway Children. Is it like The Boxcar Children? Uh, You guys tell me. Um, Definitely didn't know anything about her life until Hannah sent me this wild bio that she wrote that I keep trying to read out. This must be take 17. And I can't get through it without questions, laughing, um, clarification. Anyway, I'm going to go ahead and read this and you all can make a game out of guessing which details are tripping me up. How about that? Edith Nesbitt was born in Surrey in 1858. She had a very unsettled childhood. Her father, John, died when she was three. Her mother, Sarah, moved the family around quite a bit to try to accommodate the health needs of her sister, Mary. But Mary eventually died of tuberculosis in Normandy in 1871 when Edith was 13. Edith and her mother then moved back to the UK. And by the age of 22, she was pregnant and didn't marry the child's father, Hubert Bland until she was seven months pregnant. Even then, the pair lived apart as Hubert preferred to live at home with his mother. Hubert, by the way, was a dirty dog and was having other children with other women at the same time, including a friend of Edith's named Alice Hodson. And that whole story is really complicated because Edith, did not know the baby was Hubert's and then was like, oh, we can adopt them and you know, you can come work for us and we can just all live together and be one happy family. And then she found out, no, wait, she wasn't into that plan at all because that was weird because that's her husband's baby. Anyway, they ended up adopting the baby and then Hubert and Alice had another baby and Edith adopted that one too. All in all, Edith and Hubert raised five children together. Their three were named Paul, Mary, and Fabian, and the two children of Alice and Hubert's named Rosamond and John. Edith and Hubert remained married, even writing together under the pen name Fabian Bland, Fabian Bland, I mean, it's memorable, until Hubert's death in 1914. In 1917, Edith remarried, guy named Thomas Tucker. Good for her, by the way. But then she died seven years later. We think of lung cancer because Edith was a famous smoker. All right. Okay. All right. Now, Melissa actually pointed me in the direction of a collection of ghost stories by Edith that were adapted for BBC Radio, and they are a great spooky listen. Hannah, did you get a chance to listen to some of those? And uh, what would you think?
0: I did, and I will say <laughs> uh, I'm a big idiot because when you sent me the link to the stories, um, the link just auto played John Harrington's wedding first, and uh, I had like no problems listening to that in the middle of the afternoon. I actually listened to it twice because I was like, this isn't a ghost story. I don't get it. Uh, but then, like a few days ago, I couldn't sleep, and I was like, oh, I should keep. I should just use this time. So it's like three a.m. And I was like, I'll go and, like, listen to some more audio
1: <laughs> Okay, you were like, yeah,
0: it's 3am, it's the perfect time to listen to ghost stories. Well, I thought they were going to be shit, because I didn't like the John Charrington <laughs> one, so I thought it would be fine. And it was late, so I didn't want to turn the light on and wake myself up, like, wake myself up anymore. So I just put them on, and, um, yeah, I was, like, pretty awake after <laughs> after listening <laughs> to the man-sized-in-marble and the shadow, like, holy shit, <laughs> I was so scared. It was so grim. I was, like, so angry. Uh, that John Charrington really, like... I would say if anyone wants to go and listen, listen to John Charrington and then listen to the others because it's the worst one. <laughs>
1: oh, my God. Um, I will say, in general, I think her stories have really good hooks. Like, they're very catchy. They don't always live up to, like, the promise of the hook, but, um... They're interesting. I'm intrigued. Uh like Man Size and Marble is a really interesting story. Just quickly, that is about a pair of newlyweds who moved to this cottage that was built on the ruins of an old house, of course. And um the husband learns from the housekeeper that there's this local legend that a pair of marble statues like on the property come to life on All Saints Eve to wreak revenge. So she's definitely going to need that night off. Um, And of course, he doesn't listen and like bad things happen. And it has this very Doctor Who vibe, which I really appreciated. Like if Edith were alive today, I think she'd totally be like the next Doctor Who showrunner. My favorite, however, I just want to mention briefly, was The Violet Car. And that one is about a husband who hires a nurse for his wife because he believes she's going mad. And the wife is relieved that he hired the nurse because she believes he is going mad. And I think it's just like a great thriller E premise. I mean, Netflix, you can adapt this tomorrow for your next underbaked thriller would love it would watch it would probably not be satisfied by it, but I'd totally be into it. Um, Anyway, I hope you guys check out these audio dramas at 3 a.m. And, you know, let us know whether or not you can go back to sleep. I will drop a link to those stories uh, all over our socials. So that's all we've got for you this week. Big thanks to Melissa for coming on the show and for not one but two fantastic Broadview editions. Please follow her on Twitter at Melissa McCalla, that's M-E-L-I-S-S-A M-A-K-A-L-A, if you like horror and books. I will retweet some of her 31 Days of Horror content. It's great. Next week, in the second episode of our Halloween Double Bill, we have a very special, somewhat spooky mixtape for you guys. So check that out. And Hannah, if our listeners want to keep up with us and, you know, tell us about the railway children via DMs, how, where, how can they do this?
0: you can find us as always on instagram and twitter at bonnets at dawn you can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com you can join our lively discussion group on facebook by searching for bonnets at dawn and you can buy our book why she wrote in english and spanish wherever you get your usual literary fix